Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. Haku, haku. Uh, my name is Jonathan Cordero. I am the son of Anthony Cordero and Rosalind Mertens. Our Chumash villages uh, are at Siktun in Santa Barbara and uh, Swahil from Santa Cruz Island. Uh, my Ohlone villages up in San Francisco are uh, a village of Timigtak, which is in San Mateo County. And uh, we come from the Saklan tribe, don't know the village actually, uh, over just east of Oakland. Uh, so those are my, my ancestral villages in California. And we're also Koshimi from Baja, California. So we, we, we tend to think that California starts in San Diego. It doesn't. It goes all the way down to the end. Uh, so that's where we're here. I, uh, I met with Chad and Elaine a little while ago. Uh, we had lunch. And I had a ton of questions for them. And they had a ton of questions of me. And we finally got to the point in our conversation where we both said, we care a lot about social justice, and we don't mess around when it comes to social justice. And so at that point, I think I passed the audition, <laughs> and, and, they, and they passed the audition. So here I am. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit unique because uh, not only am I native from California, but I also have a PhD, and I also study California Indians. Uh, I was trained as a sociologist, but I'm actually an ethno-historian too, and I made that switch about 10 or 15 years ago. So this is what you get today. You get a crash course in roughly 200-year history of California Indians in California, and I am going to do my best to get this done uh, in time. I'm going to go through it very quickly, so if you have questions, save them for the end. I'm kind of one of those uh, get-in-the-groove kind of speakers, and I just kind of go and I got no notes. Uh, I know this stuff inside and out. I can answer all of your questions when we get done uh, here at the end. So look at the list uh, on your left, and that's a pretty scary list of things to talk about. Uh, these are familiar topics for most all American Indians uh, and natives in other places, obviously. And so we'll try to cover all of those as best we can. Let's start with some basics, just so you all get a sense of what California looks like here. Uh, you can see the population numbers, and those are really estimates. We really don't know how many California Indians were here prior to Spanish uh, contact. And you can see the linguistic diversity. There's so much linguistic diversity in California compared to other places. And you also probably all know there's a tremendous amount of biological diversity here, too. So California is a great place to be different. Uh, no matter what species you are. Uh, here's some population numbers for you. You can see that California is the state that has the most uh, native folks. Uh, and those are, of course, uh, American Indian folks. And then in terms of uh, federally recognized tribes, we have about 109. I think they were getting closer to 112 here pretty soon. So uh, we only have about 109, but we have a tremendous uh, native population here. That includes native Californians, obviously, um, but there's lots of other folks that are living here in California, too. So hopefully you get a sense of, of what that looks like. Um, I think it's a surprise to most people that California has the most native people of any state in the United States. And, so we, and again, we have a tremendous amount of diversity in that sense. 
I want to show you how uh, the California as a state gets divided up in terms of groups. And these are, these are technically linguistic groups. And California is really interesting because uh, California had a, a, a large, a very large number of independent tribes. But there are so few of us left that we usually use now the linguistic designation for the territory of the tribe as our tribal identification. So for example, my, my village is a little tiny village uh, on Calera Creek in San Mateo County. And our tribe, technically speaking, our tribe was probably only about you know, 10 or 20 square miles. But our family is the only family that survived from the entire San Francisco Peninsula. So we become then responsible for the Ramaytush peoples uh, of the San Francisco Peninsula. So when you see these, these designations, they're, they're really linguistic designations. They, they, they form around linguistic boundaries, which we have some problems with. Um, but for the most part, that's how things get divided up. So in Chumash territory, you can see here, there are lots of different linguistic groups in Chumash territory. So there are actually different languages, not different dialects. And so that's how our territories get divided up, more or less. Uh, if you're a member of that, if, you, if, you're, if your ancestor village is located within that you know, linguistic area, then that means that you're a member of that, what we would call tribe today. Uh, for up in Ramatush territory, you can see the San Francisco Peninsula over on the left on the top. That's uh, um, our area. And you can see the Chochenyo across the bay and the Tamian down to the south. Those are all actually, in this case, different dialects, not different languages. But then the different languages uh, spread out through the, the rest. So within, hold just a second. Within Ohlone territory here uh, are all those different language groups and all those different dialect groups. All right, let's get started. The, the mission period in California, the period of Spanish colonization that was eventually taken over by the Mexicans began in 1769 with the Portola expedition, and the missions closed around 1834. So when I talk about Spanish colonization in this next section, think 1769 to 1834. That's our period, and you can see the numbers, uh, the population numbers declining in California very rapidly during that period of time. 21 missions in California, uh, they didn't all get put in place in that order. Uh, they bounced around a little bit, some uh, earlier and some much later. So here we go. This is a big chart, and I'm just going to go down it uh, one by one. I think it's really helpful for people who study California, especially during the mission period, to understand what the goals were of the Spanish when they arrived here and, and how successful they were or weren't, because today, uh, and I'm actually writing a paper about this, today Catholics still try to find some redeemable accomplishment uh, of the California mission, during the California mission period to justify what happened. And I'll explain what happened in just a little bit. So let's, let's just run down the list for fun, shall we? Um, <laughs> So I just wrote a paper on this. It's actually listed in your uh, document. Um, for 150 years, the Catholics have said uh, that we baptized the California Indians based, uh, or converted, excuse me, the California Indians based solely on the number of baptisms. But you know as well as I do that baptism does not equal conversion. But that's the assumption that the Catholics have made since the beginning of time to justify Spanish colonization. And I just wrote a paper proving that that's not true. 
that the actual genuine conversion of the California Indians was, was less really than 4% of the population. And, and most California Indians had uh, held on to retain their uh, native traditions while they also were Catholic. So that was not the goal, of course, of the Catholics. So, um, so uh, conversion wasn't a possibility. Uh, California Indians were not really Hispanicized. Very few actually spoke uh, Spanish uh, at the end of the mission period. So, for example, uh, one of our ancestors, uh, Fernando Labrado, who's uh, from Santa Cruz Island, same, same village as I are, uh, our family is, um, said that of all of the people on all of the islands, Santa Cruz Islands, only two ever learned Spanish. So you're not Hispanicized if you don't learn to speak Spanish uh, by definition. And that's not the only measure, of course, here. Uh, the, the Spanish, of course, accomplished their goal of exploiting the California Indians, but the production at the missions uh, as a result of the exploitation of Indian labor was really moderate. So it was, you could say that it was moderately successful, but, um, but exploitation is never a success, right? And then their goal socially was to... And of course, they didn't walk up to my ancestors and say, hey, is it okay with you if we bring you into our mission system and you end up in the bottom of the religious hierarchy and the social hierarchy and the economic hierarchy? Is that okay with you? Um, that was an agreement that we reached, but nonetheless, that's where our folks ended up at the end, those who actually survived. And the political goals, of course, were for the Spanish were within 10 years to create these self-governing colonies of native peoples who, whose labor uh, would contribute to the crown. In other words, they would become good Spanish citizens uh, within 10 years. And that was just, that never even materialized. We never got, the Spanish never even got close uh, to making that happen for various reasons. Again, this is a, there's lots of details, but we'll go through this very quickly. Okay, so what did they get? Uh, the Spanish got what they wanted all along, which is they got land basically from Sonoma to San Diego. They wanted to beat the Russians to the punch here in California, and so they were able to settle the land and, and sort of move into the area and, of course, drive my ancestors out. Uh, in the history of California, we always say it this way, the California Indians are always in the way of other people's progress, right? Um, so the Indi California Indians were in the way, and they had to go, or they had to be, you know, kept. Um, and, and then, of course, when the Americans came and the Europeans came, we were in the way of their progress, too. Okay, uh, I get to talk about the G word and the S word. In, uh, in the study of California Indians, uh, we have this ongoing debate of whether or not it was genocide or whether or not it was slavery. And it's a really interesting discussion. The short answer is really simple. It depends on what definition you use. So, uh, was it genocide? By definition, if you know in advance that the people that you're gonna colonize are going to die, that's foreknowledge, right? That would be the criteria. It's genocide. And the Spanish knew before they got here to California that the Indians were gonna die. It had happened in Baja, California, immediately prior to moving into Alta, California. It happened in northern, northwestern New Mexico, or Mexico. It happened in central Mexico. And so there's a long history of foreknowledge of the consequences of colonization on the native population. And they knew, and they wrote about it. 
They were very learned. The padres who came here were very learned. They read the writings of the people, the, the padres who came before them. So they had absolutely no excuse not to know what was going to happen to the native population when they got here. So by that definition, it was definitely genocide. Was it intentional? Uh, if you read the readings of the padres from a Catholic perspective, of course it wasn't intentional. Um, but they could have stopped, of course, as you, know, you were just saying, they could have stopped at any moment, and they didn't. Um, and so there's really no excuse in that context. Was it slavery? Well, we Americans get stuck on our definition of slavery, which is ownership of people. And so by definition, for most Americans, it wasn't slavery. But if you're a kept person and you're forced to labor and you receive no compensation for that labor and you're not free to come and go as you please, then what do you call that? Slavery, right? Uh, so again, it depends on the definition you use, but if you ask most native peoples in California, it was genocide, it was slavery. Uh, was conversion forced? And this is, again, a, a, an excuse that the Catholic Church uses quite often to get out of this. They, they say in their argumentation that uh, the native peoples voluntarily converted to Catholicism. Well, uh, no one was standing there holding a gun to your head saying, go join the mission. But what, the, what did the Spanish do? Well, they, they constantly harassed members, uh, the, the, uh, our native folks in villages. They raped our women. They uh, removed our food sources, removed us from territories, uh, brought in, for example, cattle. And they would eat, of course, the food in the area. And so if you're running out of food, and your women are being raped, and uh, you're constantly harassed, what choice do you have, right, but to join a mission? So uh, Randy Milliken, just passed away last year, by the way, wrote a book, and the title is a book, uh, the title of the book is called A Time of Little Choice. And it's a perfect phrasing for what happened uh, in California. Again, this, you're getting the short version, but basically, California Indians were put in a situation by the Spanish in which they had no choice but to join the missions. Uh, what is it abuse? And again, this, it depends on your perspective. From a Catholic perspective, uh, being slapped for forgetting to do your duty was an appropriate reminder of your duty. And for the Catholics at this period of time in history, that kind of physical punishment was a part of just training for the everyday person. But California Indians did not hit their children, they did not hit their spouses uh, for purposes of discipline or for learning. So again, from a California Indian perspective, they experienced those kinds of behaviors as abusive. And penalties, the standard penalty uh, for, for you know, moderate to serious offenses in the, in the, in the missions in California was uh, to be flogged 25 times with a whip. That was just standard punishment. And there are, uh, there are California Indians, uh, for example, at Santa Cruz, Lorenzo said that he was a domestic for one of the padres. And the padre would literally leave out coins to test uh, the Indians to see if they would take it. And if they, ta they took it, they would, of course, uh, this is entrapment, right? Uh, they, would, they would, of course, give, whip the person 25 times. If, he, if, he, if the padre told Lorenzo something and Lorenzo forgot it, he would slap him. Well, if 
that's the Catholic way of doing discipline, but it certainly wasn't the, the Native American way of doing discipline. So they experienced that kind of daily physical discipline as abusive. So there's your answers to the four big questions that most folks ask. All right, let's look at some numbers. In the mission system from uh, 1769 to about 1834, there were roughly about 80,000 uh, American Indians brought into the mission system. Now, remember, we're, we're just talking about the section on the coast, from Sonoma down to San Diego, roughly you know, 20, 30, 40 miles inland down the stretch of the California coast. So roughly 80,000, about 40,000 adults, about 40,000 children. Here's the number of deaths. And you can see that about 78% of all the natives who were brought into the mission system um, died in the mission system. And, that, and if you look at the very bottom, which is, I think, the most important number that um, I've, I've been able to calculate in my research, um, use, and this is data from all of the missions, not just from a few. I'm a social scientist, and uh, I use all the data. I don't do samples uh, when it's, uh, if it's avoidable. So the average person who was brought into the California missions died within nine years, regardless of their age. And of course, you can see the death rates for children are much higher than they are for adults. And so, of course, women and children were much more susceptible than any of the other populations. Yes, this is depressing stuff. Uh, when, I, when I do my research, for example, uh, up in San Francisco, I, I, I would look at the mission registers, and I would look at my like sixth great grandparents and they'd be brought into the mission in 1783, and they were dead by 1787. And then they had four children. Only, only one survived. So all the four children survived. And when they, their children got married at the mission and had children, all of their children died. And then all of the people who were related to us in the village next door, they all died. And so I reviewed all of the you know, I recreated all of the families uh, from the San Francisco Peninsula, all of the tribes from the San Francisco Peninsula, and all, f at minimum, 1,500 people died except for my one ancestor. And you just read the names over and over and over again, hoping to find more lineages that survived from the San Francisco Peninsula, and it is not there. It's really heartbreaking stuff. So at some point in the Spanish mission system, the, excuse me, the father president of the mission, uh, who was actually at La, La Parisima in Lompoc, woke up one day and said, what are we doing? And, and this is literally what he wrote. And think about the impact of this, and I'll, I'll tell you what's, uh, what's terrible about this. He says this. He, 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 remember, he's the father president of all 21 missions. And so he gets all the reports from all of the missions on a yearly basis. Okay? And he wakes up one day and he says this. He says, every thoughtful missionary has noted that while the Gentiles, and that's a native person in the wild who hasn't been Christianized, uh, procreate easily and are healthy and robust, of course, though errant, right? Uh, in the wild, in spite of hunger, nakedness, and living completely outdoors, almost like beasts, as soon as they commit themselves to a sociable and Christian life, they become feeble, lose weight, get sick, and die. This plague uh, affects the women particularly, especially those who have become recently pregnant. He said that in 1820. And, and 
every, every missionary in California is recognizing this from 1769 all the way through to 1834. This is not new news to anyone. So the father president of the mission system wakes up, writes this in a letter, and then the next day just goes about his business. Right? Uh, and so these are the kinds of, of attitudes that the Padres had about what they were seeing. They knew what they were seeing, of course, and they didn't react to it in a significant way, in a meaningful way. The Padres often accused California Indians of not being uh, reasonable, not having reason, right? And that the Spanish phrase for a citizen of, of, in the Spanish colony was gente de razón, right? A person of reason. Well, if, if the California Indians didn't have reason, the Padres didn't have heart because you can see the absence of heart in that passage. All right, so we move from that tragedy to the next one, which was the American genocide. Elaine referenced uh, Benjamin Madley's book, which is probably the best book written on uh, genocide in California. And his book is written just on the data that's available. Uh, There's a lot of folks who who died in California who, of course, didn't make it into the records. And so now we move from the period after 1834 up and through 1900, and we'll talk about the present a little bit later on, but you can see the numbers dwindling. By 1900, there's only 20, roughly 20,000 natives left in California out of over 300,000. So it's a very rapid decline. But before we get to the numbers on genocide, I thought I sh- should share some of this information with you. This is what is also going on at the time of the American genocide. So you've got indentured servitude. Those of you, for example, who, st- who studied African Americans in the South, uh, you know, indentured servitude was a, was a part of the, the development of that area, even before Africans were brought. So we had policies of indentured servitude in California. Uh, Cal- uh, East uh, European folks in California would literally go around, and if they found a child walking on the side of the road, they would capture that child, take him to the local um, mayor's office, basically, and, and find a friend, find some Indian friend that they knew out there, pay him a dollar to say that they were the uncle of the child, and they would sign the form over, and that person would become an indentured servant for that person. And the terms for indentured servitude were sometimes 25 uh, years to life. Uh, Eventually, those laws were uh, overturned in California, but that's how this kind of thing started. Now, look, uh, the reason I have the the Native American girls up here is because uh, uh, if you look at the the prices, boys sold for $50. Girls sold sold for $150, up to $200, and you can guess why. Uh, they were essentially became sex slaves, especially for uh, European miners in California. And so you had this practice of Europeans going around capturing young girls and selling them to miners as sex slaves in California. So this is going on for quite a long time, and it's, not, you know, it's very difficult to document this stuff back in the day. And then, of course, the last uh, there, we have the convict lease system, which is uh, if a Native American is just, has no job and is just hanging around, 
The sheriff can ride up and arrest him for being a vagrant, throw him in jail, and then any white person can come bail that person out and basically use them for free labor for you know, a 30-day period or a 60-day period or longer, depending on what time uh, we're talking about here in California. All right, now hang on to your hats. California uh, is, I, I, look, I know, I know the Trail of Tears is effectively a genocide, I get that, uh, but in California, in the United States, we had an official state-sanctioned genocide. And by the state, I mean the federal government. The federal, the federal government paid people in California to kill California Indians, and most people in the United States have no idea that we actually had a state-sponsored genocide in the United States. And so you can see, uh, I'll leave this up for just a little bit, you can see the numbers here. By the way, Benjamin Madley's book is kind of a beast. Have you gotten through it already? Yeah, no. Half of it's data, and the other half is, you know, like three or 400 pages. It's, it's long, yeah. And again, what we don't have are the other numbers. We don't have the numbers for what happened before. We don't have the numbers for what happened after. This doesn't capture the sum total of genocide in California. These are just the numbers that we have records for. All right, uh, as you might expect, the California, I mean, sorry, the United States government did not honor its treaties with California Indians like it did with other Native American groups. So in California, we basically had a set of roughly 18 treaties that were established between the federal government and tribes in California. They're very dubious the way they were set up, um, but uh, they got lost. Let me, put, let me say that again. They got lost. Uh, and so uh, those treaties were never ratified. And so California Indians lost uh, quite a bit as a result of that. I'll, I'll show you here in just a minute. But if you look over on the right, you can see the, what was the original proposal for reservations in California. These were the 18 treaties, and this is the land that, is, uh, that accommodates those treaties. So you can see it's roughly about, Cal uh, California is about 100 million acres, so it's easy to do the math. So uh, we were at least proposed that we would have about 7.5 million acres granted to us in regards to reservation land. And you know why land is so important. I don't have to restate that over and over again, right? Land is important because land is money, right, for farming and, and for uh, produce. It's a, it's a way of making profit for grazing cattle, whatever it is. So it's obviously very important. Um, so in 1852, they, uh, the Senate denied the, those treaties. That's when they were lost, by the way. Um, and so... None of those treaties were ratified. And so California Indians lost, at least temporarily, access to that 7.5 million acres, which could have helped them afford the future. And the map on the right is what we got in the end. And I mean what we got in the end now. These are the reservations in California now. And they've accrued over time in terms of size and number. But that's what we got. So let me do this for you. Oops. I'll go here first, and I'll go back. 
This is the comparison. We went from 7.5 million acres to 75,000 acres, uh, which is you know, less than 1% of the total land in California. And so hopefully you can see the, the folks, uh, the, the colors in pink are the tribal territories in California now. There's going to be a map that's going to be harder to see a little bit later on, but let me back up just one. These were the original proposals. This is what we ended up with. And you can see that most of these reservations in California did not last very long, right? Just a few years. And then, you know, Hoopa Valley came around in about 1866. Uh, Paula down in San Diego came around in about 1870. Um, and the slow trickle of rancherias came in after 1900. But still to date, uh, you know, we have less than 1% of the total land in California. And you know what land we get, right? Have you ever driven down Highway 101 and looked out on the left, like down below Orange County in San Diego? It's all dry and rocky and hot, and there's no water. That's the land we get, right? If you've driven through reservations in Arizona or New Mexico, it's the same thing. We get the crap land, right? We get what's left over after the counties and cities and states and federal government and then BLM, which is the worst land, we get what's left over after that. This is what it looks like zoomed in. So here are the, here are the two parcels that were promised in the original treaties, and this is what is left. And by the way, this is a lot compared to other areas in California. So that's down San Diego way. And now for the topic of erasure, uh, is, is if losing our ancestors wasn't enough and having our land taken away from us wasn't enough, the federal government came along and through various agencies basically erased us from the records. So the superintendent of, of basically Indian Affairs in, in the United States was charged with going to California, identifying all of the bands or tribes that were still left, and then bringing into them into an agreement, you know, legal agreements, treaties with the United States. And uh, you can see what Lafayette uh, Dorrington did here. He basically said, there are very few California Indians out there. They don't need land. They're fine. And so all of the 135 tribes that were identified at that point uh, were basically prevented from getting anything at all. And so the really lack of responsibility uh, of the federal government to make sure that California Indians were cared for just never happened. And then immediately after that, of course, the uh, anthropologists and archaeologists aren't doing us any favors either because they basically pronounced us uh, extinct, uh, you can see, in the 1920s. And then they backed off that a little bit in the 1950s, roughly in the 1950s, and said, well, they're not like literally extinct. They're still there but they're so detached from their culture that they're not useful to us. And so that's what, the, the, sorry, that's what the anthropologists would call, or archaeologists would call, like, we're, we're ethnographically extinct, which means we're, we're of no value to them. And so they basically ignored us. And so salvage anthropology is that, is that idea that anthropologists are going into a situation looking to find the remnants that are still there because that's their job, to find, you know, native cultures, and uh, they're not finding what, anything that's useful for them, so they're basically ignoring us. And, of course, we had blended in with the Mexican population by then. We had blended in uh, and living in cities and suburbs by then, to some degree, and they just didn't look hard enough. 
So not only are we erased by officials of the federal government, we're also erased by academics. We just didn't exist. Uh, until, um, until about uh, 2005, my ancestors were considered extinct up in San Francisco. We didn't exist. And so I contacted an anthropologist up there and I said, hey, we're still here, right? Which is what I get tired of saying all the time in California, we're still here. Um, and then he wrote me into his, you know, wrote me into his documents. Um, but it's sort of like, you know, the last of the Mohicans. Now, I'm the last of the Ramaytush now. That's how people talk about me. But I'm like, no, I'm just one of a whole uh, set of lineages that came from that one woman who survived. And so we are still here. We're living in Wyoming and North Dakota and stuff, but we're still here. Oh, I need to go back. Sorry. I have a little fun for you. On the bottom left are two um, ancestors in our family. Um, they're like third or fourth cousins getting married on the left. And the woman on the right is a woman named America Cordero. Uh, she's one of my great-great-aunts. She married the son of Ulysses S. Grant, the president of the United States. And so there was a homegirl in the White House, and they had no idea. So there she is. Yeah. All right, where does all this leave us? Well, here's the story, basically, in a, in a nutshell, and, and the, this is the predicament that we're in today. I'll talk about that more in the second half uh, my, of my talk after uh, lunch. We lost our land. We lost our people. We lost our culture. Uh, we lost our language. When the missions closed, the California Indians were dispersed across the state, and we were fragmented. And we were at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder, so a lot of our folks married into Mexican immigrant families who were also poor in California, which is why we all have Spanish last names. Um, and uh, we were denied any kind of legal status. Remember that Native Americans didn't get the right to vote until 1924, uh, women in, of course, in 1920. And then, you know, we're, we're basically erased from all of the records. W what does this mean for us? This means for us that California Indians ended up on the very bottom of the socioeconomic hierarchy in California and have remained there ever since. If we have no capacity to, uh, for federal recognition, then we have no way of getting assistance. And it really is a terrible thing to, to note, especially about the California Indians from Sonoma to San Diego, that we remain to this day unrecognized by the federal government. And so we have absolutely no recourse to get any kind of assistance that are promised other Native groups. No recourse to get economic assistance, although there's ways of going about doing that. I'll talk about it in the second period. And um, if you look here for a second, you can see that the St. Inez Band of Chumash Indians is the only Chumash group that is federally recognized. There's, there's at least one of us out there. But their roles are restricted, and they don't allow other Chumash folks in, which I think is a tragedy. Um, but that's, that's how they roll. They're good people, by the way. I know them really well. Um, but you can see the criteria for federal recognition. 
Right, in order to be federally recognized and have that relationship with the federal government and at least gain some kinds of benefits, whether it's educational or healthcare or economic, we don't meet the criteria. I'll talk about this more in the second half, but what we lost was everything. We, we don't have, uh, for most of us, we don't have a continuation of leadership over time. We don't have our traditions intact over time. Right, I mean, I'm a lonely, yes, but we have like a word list of 60 words. We only have descriptions of four native rituals. So we lost everything, not just our people and our land, but we lost our traditions, we lost our language, we lost our culture, we have nothing. So we're rebuilding from scratch. Um, and, and, and most California Indians, again, from Sonoma to San Diego, do not meet these criteria. So federal recognition is an impossibility, really, for California Indians from Sonoma to San Diego. Uh, the federal government did not take the California situation into consideration when it built its policies for federal recognition. They did not. And so we are what we call in Indian country, we are the, the people who are out of luck, right? Which is a terrible way of saying it, but unfortunately it's true. All right, now for the map that's really hard. Oh, it didn't end up there. Sorry, I must have missed it. There it is. So this is the map that's really hard for us. If you look on this map, the shaded area is the area of missionization, roughly from Sonoma to San Diego. The dots are uh, reservations in California. Uh, fe uh, they're, sorry, they're federally recognized tribes in California. Okay? There are fewer than five federally recognized tribes in the zone of missionization from Sonoma to San Diego. And, it, and again, because we don't meet the criteria because of circum historical circumstances beyond our control, it's, it's an impossibility for us. And so that, that's the situation that we find ourselves in. And that's what I'm calling here the, the California Indian situation. And so what we have to do as California Indians is we have to start from scratch. Most of us uh, who live in, uh, in, in that area, who are the, the descendants of the Indians who were missionized, we have to start from scratch. We have to relearn our culture, right? We have to relearn our language. We have to rebuild our communities. We have to rebuild our, our political structure. And, we, and we're continuing to do that. But we have absolutely no resources to do it. Uh, and so... In the second half of my uh, today, I'll be talking about how we are going to go about trying to, and how we have been tr going about, trying to rebuild capacity and community in California. Because, again, we're, we really are starting from scratch. The, the native groups who come from outside California, um, I just talked to a guy from Canada, and he wants to do um, an International World AIDS Day conference in San Francisco. And of course, he's following proper protocol. He's calling me, I'm the chairperson of our tribe, but he's calling me and asking me if they can do this presentation in San Francisco. And I, of course, I've given him my permission. And he, he's, he's asking me questions about protocol. You know, what's the proper protocol for doing this? Are you the only person I should talk to, et cetera, et cetera? And I'm like, we don't have a protocol. We don't have a traditional protocol. Uh, if, we, if we put one in place, we're going to have to sort of invent it and borrow uh, and get assistance from other groups, which is a really important part of us, but we don't have it. And so the expectation of Native groups coming from outside California is that we're as organized as they are, and we are not. 
the, uh, you, you talked about uh, the, the anniversary of Alcatraz, which is, the, I think, it's the 50th anniversary of Alcatraz next year. And so that goes through me, right? They have to ask my permission uh, to do, they're doing a canoe journey, and we're going to receive them in San Francisco. And they're like, what's the protocol for that? I'm like, uh, I don't know. We'll get together and figure it out, you know? So we're going to have to put that together. Um, in, or, in order to do that and receive people properly. Um, so it is, it's a challenge for us on, on a lot of levels. And our, our communities are fragmented. Uh, you know, Ventura County, even Ventura County is an expensive place to live. So, um, so a lot of, about half of, of the members of Julie's tribe, the Barbaranian, Ventura, Band of Mission Indians here in Ventura County, they don't live here, right? Because it's too expensive. Um, and don't get me started on the education levels. We are, education levels for California Indians are the lowest of any group in the state. So uh, if we need help in building our communities, we, we need educated people too. All right, folks, I'm going to stop there. You have been listening to the BartCast produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the BartCast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening. Thank you.